2: good morning and welcome to our wild world last week we were talking about cats 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 with my guests dr john hadidian and katie Lisnick, the humane, both with the humane society of the united states and katie is the director of cat protection and policy and john's typical bailiwick is urban uh, wildlife conflict and resolution so we left off last week with pretty much covering the definition of feral cats and social cats and the community cat which is a language basically coming to a um consensus of language of how we talk about the different cat communities as Katie had so well outlined but we didn't have time and that's why we're continuing today about feral cats and pet cats and community cats on the more of the wild landscape and the conservation response and some of the challenges not only we as people face but the humane society and their programs and what Katie deals with sorry Katie deals <laughs> Within her everyday work, and some of the um, other places, national and international, where John works in dealing with the cat problem, or let's call it the cat solution. So, today we're talking more about cats. So, welcome back, John and Katie.
3: Hey, Ellie, great, great to be here. Thanks for
2: having us back. Um, I, I love it. This is a great conversation because there's not many places where we can. Um, sit here and talk about all these issues. We last week we had talked about um, some of the pro- programs that are on TV, so all the um, changing attitudes and catitudes towards. Uh, keeping cats indoors the markets that are built up cat kitty litter changing the whole way of keeping cats indoors versus the catio and whole architectural design fields that have opened up and creating indoor cat habitats. So today let's talk a little more about what happens with the wild landscape and um, John you were in Hawaii doing a presentation on feral cats. And Katie, last week you had mentioned there was an island in Hawaii that created a cat sanctuary. So we have both things going on. John, let's start with you. Um, what was your presentation about in Hawaii? Well,
3: well we have a, a project uh, in Hawaii. A couple of things are going on there, actually. But on the island of Maui, which is part of the, the same group of islands as Lanai, which Katie did mention last week, uh, we're trying to bring together the various stakeholders, the people who take care of cats, the people who are trying to protect birds, and um, work toward a, you know, kind of a consensus solution for the vast numbers of cats, sometimes perceived as more vast than they really are. But there are large numbers of cats who live poorly totally outdoor lives in Hawaii, something that Mark Twain, when he visited there, you know, so many years ago, noted and, and made famous by, uh, and I, I won't quote this uh, verbatim, but it's cats. I saw cats, cats everywhere, cats on the docks, cats on the ground, cats in the patios, cats everywhere. I and mean, they just were all over the island, even as far back as when he was visiting, which is probably the, what, 1840s? Sometime, a long time ago, before I was born.
2: <laughs> it wasn't yesterday.
3: So, the reason, of course, is because there are climates, South Florida, the Southeastern United States, uh, the uh, Pacific Coast, Southern California, and places like Hawaii that have such benign climates that cats can do very well outside and will reproduce freely. Uh, Where Katie comes from, up in Portland, Maine, it's a totally different situation as it would be in northern Minnesota. Uh, cats can't sustain themselves outside. Or here in Colorado
2: during a bad winter.
3: Right. So, it's a very dynamic landscape. But cats are distributed worldwide. They have been since probably the Middle Ages. As soon as people began these long sailing expeditions to visit other parts of the world and, and undertake these discoveries, cats accompanied them. They were on board these ships again because they provided the valuable service of controlling rodents on ships but as soon as they got to places like Australia for example they would jump ship or be traded as valuable commodities uh, they, as they were in those days and and left to you know colonize the mainland
2: so that brings us, I just need to bring it in, we had done a, a program with Will Stolzenberg called Rat Island of the unintended consequences of our explorations and the rats on the ships that would go on to some of the islands, especially around Australia, New Zealand, and the Aleutians, and there for um, native... Uh, birds, mostly, that were totally unprepared for an animal like the rat. But now you're talking about we intentionally brought along a predator and would introduce it into a place that had never seen it before.
3: Correct, and and it's equally true of cats as it is of the rodents that we transported all over the globe. Uh, they got onto these islands, they got into these you know naive bird and animal populations, and had sometimes devastating impacts on them.
2: So you would mentioned Australia and New Zealand in particular. What's going on there?
3: Well, there are lots of cats in Australia and New Zealand both that are, are truly feral. They're wild. They never have anything to do with people. They're out there breeding, reproducing, just like a, a native carnivore, like a raccoon would in this country. Uh, they become part of that landscape. Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand especially, had no land mammals. They had a couple of species of, of bats. Everything else there was, you know, the bird populations, nothing else. And cats, when they originally colonized those islands, became an enormous problem for the birds who were naive and susceptible and often very vulnerable.
2: I can imagine, because a cat is an obligate carnivore. As, uh, and a um, consummate carnivore, too. If, if very much so. That brings into a whole other discussion about the market of cat food and raw diets versus you know the canned cat food and the kibble, which you know that's something I didn't even think of. But that's a conversation for another day. So let's. Um, so we defined last week the feral cat is one that is not social, does not want to be around people, has nothing to do with people, and is out there breeding, and in. Um, cases like Australia and New Zealand, predating on naive land uh, mammal in, or avian communities and wreaking havoc. And we all know from our house cats, the havoc they can wreak just uh, being indoor cats. So in terms of some of the programs that Humane Society is doing, how are you bringing this together with the people? And we had discussed last week about the prevailing attitudes of people and cats, um, those that want them around those that want them in the landscape and those that don't and katie had talked a lot about this um so how do you deal with a in a place where you've got like australia and new, and new zealand and some of these island communities where i'm going to presume at the moment they don't want the cats there and how do you go about working with that community is it is it a trap-neuter-return program or is it a euthanasia and an eradication?
3: Uh, great question. It's a very complex issue. There have been a variety of strategies tried. Uh, we're well aware that on islands and in places even, you know, continental-sized land masses like Australia, that the goal is to eradicate cats and that they're pursued aggressively in lethal control programs. So. Uh, what we say about that is and it's difficult you know we're as much vested in protecting wildlife species as we are in protecting cats so for us it's one of those balancing acts where we have to kind of consider the the totality of what we're faced with and we understand that these, these unique rare vulnerable and endangered species on islands need to be protected but there are many many other things besides just cats including some of the rodents that we just mentioned and invasive plants and humans themselves that impact these systems.
2: I'm sorry, I'm going to interject here. It might be worthwhile at this point for our listeners to redefine what the Humane Society of the United States does. I think a lot of people interpret it that it is a welfare um, animal protection organization, animal rights, animal welfare, and the Humane Society has grown tremendously since its um, auspicious beginnings back in what was it the late 1800s early 1900s maybe before we get any further between you and katie you can give us a little bit of idea of what humane society us and humane society international what their goals are and then we can apply that to how it it works on the feral cat colony
3: yeah okay well we can stop and, and visit that um it's a great idea uh, we began the HS Humane Society of the United States, HSUS, uh, had its beginnings in ni- mid-1950s. 1954, we separated from uh, the AHA, the American Humane Association, because our leaders and our founders felt that, you know, as wonderful as the local humane societies were in their communities for providing services, they couldn't speak to a national audience or a nation- with a national voice. So we said we're gonna take on the big issues, we're gonna legislate, we're going to, you know, have representation in the in the Congress, in the halls of power, we're going to go for big things, like the passage of the Animal Welfare Act, for example. And we've committed ourselves to that kind of a national and now international platform with Humane Society International. But our our roots and our heart and, and and a lot of our capacity is tied up with our companion animals division Mm -hmm. And, and Katie can speak to what those folks do and the breadth and the scope and we didn't even mention except in very short passing the Pets for Life program and other things so maybe Katie you want to spend a minute or two?
4: Sure, I mean certainly a lot of folks come to the Humane Society of the United States from you know having companion animals in their background so they had pets as a child you know they feel a connection to a dog or a cat And then once they're involved with our organization and learning more, then we're talking to them about farm animal issues and wildlife issues and animal research and testing. And we really help people sort of embark and look at the the wider world of animal issues and where we can confront cruelty um, in all of its forms and really celebrate the bond that we have with animals, both companion and wild. Um, So for our companion animals department, We're really very focused on um, four major areas. One of those areas is managing, managing cats, humanely managing cats. And so I'm using cats and I'm talking about all of them. (laughs) So that's a very big task. Yeah. We're talking about community cats, owned cats, shelter cats, all of the above. um, And that's just one of our priorities. Another one of our priorities is um, keeping cats or keeping pets in homes. So, making sure that we are breaking down barriers around, you know, pets in rental housing, or behavioral issues. A big area that I work on is making sure that people understand how to modify their cat's behavior and not just open the door and toss the cat out if she is scratching on the couch or, you know, maybe not using the litter box appropriately. Um, and so, keeping pets in homes is another one of our focus areas. Um, the third one is getting more animals into homes, so really breaking down adoption barriers and making sure that as many animals that are coming into our shelters and rescues um, that are adoptable, they get out and they find homes. You know, that euthanasia is not an option there. Um, we want to really boost the live release rate um, of animals coming into the shelters and rescues. And then the final one that John just uh, mentioned is really helping underserved communities. So looking at the underserved communities that are in, you know, every state, in every part of our country, there are populations where, you know, there there may may not be a veterinarian's office. You know, there may not be a pet store. There may not be a grocery store that sells healthy and nutritious food for their pets. There's probably, you know, no conversation going on in that community about spay-neuter or about vaccinations. And so going into those communities, but there are definitely animals there, and there are people there that love their pets and want to do the best for them and so we go into these areas and then we help other organizations go into these areas by mentorship programs um, to really help address those animals in those underserved populations and again here's the term community make sure that we are right you know raising up the animals and the people in these areas where they need the assistance. Um, and something that might be interesting to folks, uh, I know it's interesting to me, <laughs> and John, um, hopefully it's interesting to everybody else, but you, when you're looking at the underserved populations, when you look at spay-neuter rates of cats, of owned cats, it's very high. You know, 80%, 90% of owned cats are spayed or neutered. And then, and actually the same with dogs. But then when you look in the underserved communities, it's the exact opposite you'll have 80 to 90% that have not been altered. And so these are populations that, you know, the shelter and rescue community, our animal welfare community in general, has not done a good job of reaching. Um, and so we're really putting a lot of time and energy into these communities to help both the animals and the people there.
2: Well, thank you both for that, because you know that was really important to understand where the Humane Society is coming from, and the scope that you're covering, especially as we're talking about cats, 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 and more cats. So, John, um, that leads us back into where you were leaving off before we took the break. We've got a little bit of time here, um, a couple of minutes until we need to cut away, um, of dealing with the wild side, the um, urban-wild interface and the feral cat population.
3: Okay, I think what um, I wanted to say and didn't complete in the discussion we were just having is with these situations, these these difficult and complex situations as on islands where eradication is the objective, uh, we're not going to stand in the way of the people who are managing those landscapes, but we are going to insist that the programs that are conducted be humane. So the very first distinction we would make is we should not cause suffering and, and and unnecessary deaths when we're dealing with managing cats in, the, in those environments.
2: That's a, that's a very important issue um, and that's why it's called humane and uh, we're having a lot of uh, consequences from inhumane treatment. Katie had mentioned abuse and cruelty and I would assume in some of these island contexts and underserved communities and rural communities we're dealing with uh, those kinds of people where not those kinds of people I didn't mean it to sound that way but underserved communities where they might not have access to some of the tools that the humane society has to offer so we're going to cut away to a break stick with us my guest Dr. John Hadidian and the director of cat protection and policy they're both with the humane society of the united states so stick with us we'll be right back
1: ellie founded wild eyes foundation because she loves africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet she does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity it is irreplaceable Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E
5: Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop! Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and On Demand on the Voice America Variety Channel.
6: Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as the show is often hosted by national experts in the fields of leadership, Teamwork, management, corporate responsibility, accounting, governance, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be more trustworthy. Your hosts are trusted professionals with years of experience in applying strategies with today's leading organizations. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
2: This is Our Wild World with my guests, Dr. John Hadidian and Katie Lisnick with Humane Society of the United States, and we're talking feral cats. So last week, we had talked about a lot of the issues surrounding We're going to call the urban and suburban cat population, the strays, the neighborhood, the community cats. And today we're talking about the other side of this coin, the truly feral cat in the wild landscape and the consequences these cats have in these areas. And right before the break, John was talking about uh, island landscapes and feral feral cat communities. And um, so what are some of the threats, cats, the threats that cats pose, not only Let's say in both, in both the urban, suburban, and the wild landscape.
3: Well, Ellie, as you mentioned last week, I think um, cats are consummate and obligate carnivores. No matter how much we think we can domesticate them, they still have that, I'm a hunter, and I'm a good hunter, and I want to hunt uh, instinct. So uh, what happens when they're outdoors and they need to hunt, they have to hunt in order to sustain themselves, is they take a toll on, on wildlife, sometimes on native species, sometimes on non-native species, which opens up a whole other point of discussion. but um, they, you know there have been studies published which in the United States alone credit cats with uh, the killing of billions of small mammals and birds. I think the estimate for birds was somewhere between 2.4 and 3.7 billion.
2: When I saw that statistic, it, it it boggled me. And then Katie had said last week we have, in the United States alone, 30 to 40, that's 30 to 40 million cats. So if you take even a small percentage of those that are let outdoors, willingly, or Abandoned, and that's an issue. I want. I think John can address later. Abandonment issues about pets. We're having quite an effect on the landscape.
3: Yeah, we are, and we aren't. Um, one of the issues is what birds are they killing, or what small mammals are they killing? And often, as is you know, the history of our relationship with them, they're killing the small mammals that we don't want in our homes and around our our environments. Our ourselves. The, Introduced mice and rats, and um, with respect to birds, you know the studies, at least in urban areas, are just as likely to show cats preying on introduced species again—the house sparrows, starlings, pigeons—as they are on on birds that we value are native and are you know protected. So there's that complexity to deal with from the get-go. As Absolutely.
2: Well. I mean that that's a tough one. How do you tell your cat don't take this bird but do take that bird? That's that's not a doable scenario.
3: It's it's easier for us than for some other groups and organizations because we want to see all birds protected. And okay. we want to see all cats protected. So we can go, you know, we, we can just go expansively here and say, We're the humane society, you know, we care about house sparrows, we care about starlings, we care about pigeons. And uh, we don't want to see them suffer or die unnecessarily. And uh, that gets us by <laughs> – I don't know well, how ultimately,
2: ultimately, as we discussed last week, that's the goal, to have less cats abandoned, yes. unwanted, in shelters, in sanctuaries, putting less pressure on people's resources and less pressure on the, the earth resources in a, in a landscape, whether it be urban or wild.
3: Absolutely. So and there's our
2: common ground. So that's our starting point.
3: Yeah, and our ending point, we hope.
2: A good point. <laughs> so um, in a in a wild landscape, and a feral cat colony, and once again, this is a cat colony that um, is not socialized at all. First, let's start with how work how successful is the TNR trap, neuter, release um, program in a feral cat colony where, let's say a place they don't want to necessarily euthanize, eradicate the cats, but they want to diminish the cat population. You had said that there has to be certain attrition rates and a certain percentage to make even a TNR program work.
4: Yes, so there are definitely some models that have shown that you want to be removing at least half of the cats. If you're gonna do say a trap and euthanize program, you're gonna be going in to the colony, to the community every year and removing at least half of the cats um, to, to kind of get it below the level that it's actually increasing year over year um, and actually start seeing some decreases. For TNR, it's going to look a little different and if I had some visuals to show you, I have a really nice little uh, graph that shows this very well. Uh, hopefully my words will describe it and put a picture in your mind. So you've got, you know, 50 percent year over year and slowly the colony will start to decrease and say we're going to do like a 10 year out, 10 year, 10 year period. For Trap new to return, you need to get a higher level of sterilization right off the bat. You want to get at least 75% or higher in that first year. But from there, all you need to do is maintain your 75% and you're going to see decreases comparable to removing half every year. And so once you reach that 70%, so you've got bigger resource investment in the first year but then second and third it tapers off because as the population decreases you're only having to sterilize you know a handful of cats to keep it at that seventy five percent rate. and so tnr at the outset will look like it's going to cost some more time and money and energy but when you're looking at the long-term um, and the feasibility of doing a project like this over the long term TNR actually works out to be um, the you know the easier process than having to go and remove and trap cats year over year over year
2: and that really is a conservation response, not only a humane response but it's a conservation response because conservation is really about the long term. So Katie you'd brought in and John you'd brought up an interesting point that I hadn't thought of moving cats translocating them we all know about this in terms of wildlife and translocating where there's a habitat that will take them it's difficult with big cats but how does this work with domestic feral cats moving and translocating them where do you where do you move them to
4: <laughs> and that is the question so we get asked a lot about relocation And that you'd hit the nail upon the head. There's cats everywhere. And so there's no, you know, there's no region or country or city that's jumping up and down saying, hey, we don't have any cats. Send us cats. You know, there are cats everywhere. And so there's no lack of cats. There's no sink to be sending the source cats to. Um, And so relocation is something that we really try to stay away from unless it's unavoidable. And for those situations, it would be something like, you know, there's a colony of cats in a house that's about to be demolished, or there are, um, you know, threatened or endangered species of of wildlife that's there, and the cats are having a marked um, impact on them, and the cats need to be, be removed from that area. Then we would talk about relocation, and it can be done. Um, but the problem is finding the spot where they're going to go to. So, well, John,
2: I'm sorry, John, you had mentioned last week about a cat sanctuary on an island in Hawaii. Both you and Katie had talked about it. Is that a feasible place to move cats to?
3: In that particular setting and context, yes, and it works, and it's the Animal Rescue Center of Lana'i, and it's a, one of the smaller of the Hawaiian Islands. It's almost exclusively almost all of it is privately owned. There are a couple of resorts there, and a wonderful woman named Kathy Carroll has dedicated herself to seeing the cats that are homeless, seeing the cats that are are free roaming on that island, moved into a, I think, 15,000 square foot sanctuary. It's an amazing place to visit because these cats just are all, you know, almost all tractable and, and approach you and are friendly and um, it's just run so well that we consider it to be a model for the kind of thing that could help in a, the bigger picture a comprehensive management program but I also want to mention that we have we ourselves have gotten invested in keeping cats in sanctuary through an effort that was cooperative with the US Fish and Wildlife Service and the US Navy uh, to remove cats from one of the Channel Islands called San Nicholas. It's a small uh island that's that's used by the Navy as a missile test site and tracking station. And cats had gotten onto that island a long time ago and had become feral. And through the efforts of a bunch of different organizations and entities, uh we came together to an agreement on removing the cats. They weren't gonna kill the cats. They were going to trap them, give them to us. We were going to take them to our Ramona Wildlife Center, which is um, in Southern California. And put them in uh, confinement in such a way that they could never be a threat to wildlife again. And we have some 40 to 50 cats there who were over a long period of time trapped and removed from the island, flown to Ramona, and put in this facility. And they're, they're happy cats, they're happy people, because they have these cats, and um, but but in a, a rather unusual and exceptional solution to that kind of problem, because of the expense and the logistics and other things, everything had to come together pretty perfectly.
2: But it would be a neat project for any of our listeners out there that adores cats, wants to help reach this common goal of removing unwanted cats from shelters and the landscape, and you've got a couple million to spare then yeah. start a cat sanctuary where uh, wild feral cats that are interfering with a landscape could be moved to and talk to John and talk to Katie and the Humane Society because there's a solution right there it is doable and as we talked last week the, John you mentioned this facility is it an indoor outdoor facility is it a Um, as we talked about a catio or a habitat where the cats can go inside outside but not affect or be affected by the wildlife or are they rehomed?
3: Yeah in both cases there's access to the outside as well as shelter inside uh, and the cats are free to move around. Um, On Lanai there's 300 cats almost in that facility so they all have their little you know den boxes and other devices that get them out of weather and out of uh... contact with other cats or people if they feel like it Uh, But most of the time they're outdoors
2: most of the time they're outdoors i can imagine the um, just the logistics of having three hundred cats indoors if you have one or two cats indoors and not enough cat boxes that would be rather astonishing so um, that leads me into something, a question that I'd, I'd like to pose in, in the public health ri- public health risks, not only to people, but to wildlife, when you've got cat colonies, um, feral cat colonies, or even this facility, um, the, the risks that do, do cats carry diseases that are transferable to other wildlife species or to people or vice versa?
3: Yeah, it's vice versa. Um, Cats can transmit diseases to wildlife, to other cats, uh, and rarely to people, the most serious of which is rabies. And um, they can get those things from wildlife, probably not from people too much, but from pet cats as well. Uh, There's a host of cat diseases. You know, we were mentioning control on islands. Actually, one of the ways in which cat populations are knocked down on islands, often is to introduce a disease, feline distemper, that initially sweeps through the population and kills, you know, probably eight out of every ten cats, and then they go in with other techniques afterwards. Um, Katie can speak to the cat diseases better than I, but, you know, with regard to rabies and this particular issue of toxoplasmosis, which is uh, something that cats are the definitive host for, a parasite, and it is. Um, it is pretty lethal to things like sea otters that we value and want highly to protect as well as monk seals on hawaii so, uh... we're looking for solutions and answers to those kinds of issues as well and
4: then, oops, sorry go, go ahead. ahead katie no i was gonna say you know our yes so there are certainly diseases rabies being you know the chief among them with the most serious risk And something we do struggle with, you know, certainly we do in Maine and here on the East Coast where rabies is endemic. Um, But again, the same goal that we're talking about here that all of us have, if we reach that goal, then disease risks are going to go down as well. So fewer cats coming into contact with wildlife, fewer cats that are homeless, that are reproducing, disease risks go down as well. So even though this is a serious issue and, and it deserves to be talked about and deserves to be looked at, it's the same suite of solutions that we're going to be coming back to for both the predation and the disease risks. And so, you know, in my mind, that's the good thing. You know, we're not having to deal with these issues all separately. If we can reduce the number of cats, then we're helping all of these host of issues.
2: That's that's an incredible response. Thank you for that, because that is ultimately the goal. So um, I'm sorry, but we need to take, cut away to a break right now. And when we come back uh, with my guests, uh, John Hadidian and Katie Lisnick, we're going to talk about some of the uh, laws around Uh, feral cats and the mandates and some of the work that humane society is doing so stick with us we'll be right back
6: what can you find on get real radio well quite honestly who you really are Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Voice America presents a new kind of
5: health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective. Your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer.
1: You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to WildEyes at WildEyes.org. That's W I L D I Z E at W I L D I Z E dot ORG. Now, back to our Wild World.
2: to Our Wild World and Cats, Cats, and More Cats with my guest Dr. John Hadidian and uh, with Humane Society U.S. and Katie Lisnick, who is the Director of uh, Cat Protection and Policy for the Humane Society. So before the break, we would left off in terms of uh, the possibilities and how to deal with uh, feral cat colonies in the wild landscape and the consequences that... Cat- wild cats, wild domestic cats, have on the landscape. So, John, when we were talking, and now that we have Katie on the program, there are laws and legislation around trap, neuter, return uh, programs and projects, and I'd be interested to know what some of that is, how you go about um, creating legislation about this and what some of the mandates are and then what some of the public response is in terms of pro and con or for and against this legislation.
3: Right. There are there are legal battles that are, are have been and are going to be in the future fought over TNR, whether it's permissible, whether it's sanctioned by municipalities. Uh, I think, and, and again, Katie, you know, works in this this area extensively, but my take on it is that uh, to go back to our discussions about cats as community entities uh, it's a community involvement a community decision a community's commitment to dealing with outdoor cats that um... we really want to talk about and being humans we have to sometimes create laws and sometimes legislate and sometimes you know mandate that things can and will and should be done uh but generally i th- i think you know beyond what we do have to deal with in the legal landscape we want to also emphasize the kinds of holistic solutions to the problem and if we you know i'm going to let Katie talk a little bit about the legal stuff cuz she works it all the time but if we can come back to holistic solutions I think that would be uh, beneficial for everybody.
2: Absolutely. So why don't we do that, Katie? Why don't you fill us in on some of the policy and the the work that you do as the Director of uh, Cat Protection and Policy, and that will lead us back into some of the challenges that uh, the Humane Society U.S. faces.
4: Sure. So on laws and ordinances, as we've talked about both last week and this, there's a lot of complication. Uh, And there's a lot of different viewpoints and opinions and sort of a um, mishmash of terms and ideas that, that are embedded in laws and ordinances all over the country. So historically, animal care and control ordinances and state laws were really based on our responses to dogs. If there were packs of dogs running around, obviously that posed a public health risk. Um, You know, perhaps dogs were biting people, you know, people wanted to round up the dogs uh, and dog pounds originated to take care of those dogs, do something with them. And then over time we sort of realized, oh, cats are here too, we need to do something with them. And so we sort of just forced them into the dog model that was already on the books. And we're finding now, over the past decade or so, that that's not working all that well. Cats obviously are different from dogs. And how we deal with them, which is what we've been talking about these past two times, um, is a little bit different than how we're wanting to deal with dogs. And so we're left with this legal framework that is in some ways good and in some ways not so good for what we're trying to do for cats. Some um, of the time we we tend to see most of the cat regulations at the local ordinance level. So municipalities will prescribe how cats are picked up, what cats are picked up, um, how they're handled in a shelter or an animal control facility, what you can do with them. Um, and then there's all the, animal, uh, the anti-cruelty statutes, which would be talking about abandonment of an owned cat, you know, leaving your cat in an apartment after you've moved out. That is against the law in all 50 states, that is cruelty. Um, and what we're trying to, do, what we're struggling with now is sort of this idea of these unowned cats and how do they fit into this structure that's built around owned cats and owned dogs? And so is it abandonment to take a feral cat, alter it, give it a vaccine, give it an ear tip and put it back into the community where it was living and thriving? Is that abandonment? Nobody really owns that cat. And so who's, you know, who's abandoning that cat? And so we, you know, we get into these sticky legal battles and, and kind of go back around and around on, on legislative discussions around these, but, and this is a very long um, description of this but what I'll say is the laws are changing we're looking at state laws we're looking at ordinances and we're trying to make them much more permissive than they are right now and so we're trying to make it so that TNR programs or you know catios and innovative shelter programs that are popping up are allowed not necessarily mandated that they have to be done but making sure that they can be done if there are groups and if there's energy and if there are people motivated to do so in their communities.
2: Well, that sounds like a a win-win situation and a solution. Is it that difficult legislatively and law-wise to get something like that to happen?
4: It definitely can be. You know, you hear the the old, you don't want to see sausages being made, you don't want to see laws being made. Um, the same holds true for cat ordinances and cat laws. Sometimes the hearings can be very messy. Uh, there tends to be a lot of task forces and focus groups. Legislators will get a little bit sick of hearing about cats and they say, okay, stakeholders, you go, you hash it out and you come to us once you all agree on something. Uh, and sometimes that can be a really good solution because these these issues are tough, and it, you are, you know, you get people that are stakeholders coming from a whole host of different opinions and backgrounds, and sometimes they just need time to hash their ideas out, uh, and then come forward with a plan.
2: But isn't, I'm, I'm thinking this is what's so great about the Humane Society, is that you have this framework, and you have so many people, such as you, John, and Katie, who are specializing in these issues that are are reaching, beyond animal welfare, animal rights, and reaching out into, I'm going to call it conservation in our wild world issues, where um, domestics and wilds meet. John, you work a lot in urban wildlife conflict, so usually wildlife uh, wildlife conflicting with our urban landscape, like bobcats eating cats, um, and that kind of thing, but here we have a framework by the Humane Society to... Uh, provide a place and a forum to discuss these things. So I can imagine this has come a long way uh, in terms of what you guys have have been able to accomplish. Yeah?
3: It's come a long way. It needs to go further.
2: And Uh, so tell us what some of that further is.
3: Well, I'll give you my take on it and then Katie can give you hers. But um, when we look at conflicts in regard to anything to deal with animals, wildlife or whatever uh we look to what we call hol- holistic solutions that is we understand and realize no one technique works perfectly everywhere all the time so we look at tnr that's part of a solution it's not the solution it needs to be improved and perfected and as it constantly is thanks to the dedication of a whole bunch of people we haven't even had the opportunity to mention here but um, that concept is, is, is evolving and changing, and it's like any other management strategy. It needs to be tried and, and then proven and improved and you know constantly made better. There's public education. Uh, as you know, Ellie, from dealing with any wildlife issue, you have people who are strongly on the left and strongly on the right, and then a much larger group of people who don't really understand or maybe not even care yet about the issue, who are in between. We need to reach those in-betweeners.
2: Those that are even unaware that there unaware. is an issue.
3: Yeah, often. Very unaware. And um, it's easy to see why with this issue in particular, people would just drive by that cat sitting next to the dumpster and, and looking for a lawn and, and not think about it. You know, oh, somebody's cat's out for a walk, whatever. Uh, you know, no, it's part of a... a Group of cats that live outdoors all the time, and and somebody may be feeding them, somebody may not. So uh, you know there are any number of things that need to be done: the catios the solutions, behavioral enrichment, the keeping more cats indoors, uh, outreach, community involvement, as Katie has mentioned, and and we need to invent new solutions. Uh, we we can't rest on any laurels here and think that we know how to deal with this. We We're learning how to deal with it, and we need to keep on learning and and engage, again, this vast community of people who care and are involved and who have uh, brilliant ideas of their own.
2: So that brings us to where things stand and Humane Society and what you and Katie are doing on both sides of the coin, the urban, suburban, and um, community cat versus the feral cat. Uh, the ones that are out there destructively in the landscape and those that are out there wanted in the landscape but are creating problems. So what are some of the resources our listeners can um, take advantage of with Humane Society? What are some of the education pro- programs, the, um, the, the services that you offer, and where can our listeners find you?
4: Sure. So there are a whole host. This is the part where we get to be excited <laughs> that we have a lot of resources to be able to offer. Um, Anybody that's thinking about these issues that wants to learn more, they can go on HumaneSociety.org and look up cats and they will find more information than they probably ever wanted about both these issues and owned cat issues as well. Um, and as John was saying, it, you know, it's no—it's no one program, it's no one project that's going to solve this. It's all of us working together, doing our own tasks and our own thoughts and our own ideas, and putting them all into play. And so, there's room for everybody to get involved with this issue. Um, Something that I do want to mention also for anyone listening who is more of the shelter or rescue side of things or maybe involved with animal control, um, we have extensive resources on how to do trap, neuter, and return the most effective way possible. And that would be targeting your resources to actually be able to reach that high percentage of sterilization that you need to be able to start seeing a, rep- uh, a reduction in the colony cats there. Um, and we have the tools to teach you how to do that um... you know the rationale for why we have resources on how to work with your local counselors to get uh, more permissive laws and ordinances on the books we have information on shelter programs and how to run them to get more cats healthy and adoptable out the door alive information on keeping cats in homes treating behavioral issues so the cats aren't going to be surrendered or left out on the streets. You know, there's a whole host of information and anybody who's interested in this topic, and I know there are millions out there, uh, studies have shown that around 10 to 15 percent of American households feed community cats. So they might not go that next step and we would encourage them to do so by checking us out uh, and getting involved.
2: Absolutely. So. Um, listeners, folks out there, this is where your donations go when you do donate to the Humane Society. So when you get that postcard or you see that advertisement on late night television or any any time on television, or you're watching wildlife or uh, domestic animal um, programs, this is this is what we need to work on. And there is an organization out there, the Humane Society of the United States and the international side of the Humane Society, that is totally focused on providing these resources and these solutions to you. So do take advantage of all the resources Katie just mentioned. And John, we have a few minutes left. What would be some of the takeaway you would like our listeners to get today and out of these two episodes?
3: Well, I, I would think, least starting in sequence, one is to understand the history of not only the cat-human relationship, but the depth to which the so-called problems with cats issue, uh, you know, exists in history. We're dealing with something that people have been talking about for well over a hundred years, and it's not going to be solved tomorrow or the next day. It's only going to be solved when we combine, you know, the best thinking with the best technology, And we haven't even mentioned the idea of something that could be an oral contraceptive rather than bringing cats in to surgically sterilize them, which is time and labor expensive. Uh, That's the the golden standard for, I think, the future, is to get something that people who are taking care of these colonies can just feed their animals and, and be assured that there will be no reproduction going on. We're looking to that. We're looking forward to that. That will that will change the the the, the landscape.
2: Is there something like that in play now? I know there, there is for wildlife. It, it requires usually a sedation in and in a, a, a you know a darting. But is there right. an oral?
3: Um, there is one a product called uh, Gonicon, that that has been used on cats and has been its efficacy has been determined. But as you say, it involves you know. Basically, capturing the animal, giving injections—it's—it's it's not the ideal. But uh, I often like to use this analogy. You know, we didn't start out with El- a Cadillac Eldorados as the vehicle in which we transported ourselves. We started out with Model A Fords, and we didn't get to where we are today with these these electric cars and all this other stuff uh, by ignoring the need to have technology advance through time. That's exactly what we're doing with contraceptive technologies, is we're testing them, improving them, perfecting them, and advancing them through time. So someday, and we hope soon, uh, that might be available to us.
2: So we have, between these two episodes, really highlighted and sort of just touched part of the iceberg, I'm not, a little more than the tip, of the issue of cats and society. Uh, people who love cats, people who hate cats, cats that are in the landscape that shouldn't be there and cats that are in the landscape landscape that are wanted to be there so today we've given our listeners a whole lot of resources that's the humane society of the united states hsus.org is that correct
4: you can get to us that way or org.
2: Alright. Keyword search Humane Society and you will get there. Uh, and look up cats. There are a whole lot of solutions out there. And once again the common goal is to remove cats from the landscape. Unwanted cats from the landscape. Whether it be in the wild, in the shelter or in the home. There are resources for you out there. So take advantage of it. Um, unfortunately we're out of time. This has been a fascinating conversation. I think. Thank you so much for giving me two hours of your time and, and being able to cover as much of this as we did. So thank you, John.
3: Most welcome Emily. thank you for the opportunity.
2: Uh, my pleasure and thank you so much, Katie. I understand you've just come in to DC from wherever you were out there in the cat landscape. So welcome and thank you for your time and uh, I appreciate what you've
4: done. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
2: My pleasure. So this is, uh, once again, Cats, Cats, Cats. Listen to both our episodes, and we'll be with you again on Our Wild World next week. Thank you. This is Ellie Weiss.